Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. Uh, we have a great, great show today, so stay where you are. We've got a uh, absolutely tremendous guest, a gentleman named Jimmy Young, who's a former Emmy-winning, uh, Emmy award-winning talk show host from Boston. We'll give him that. That's okay. Uh, he now has cannabis media, and he's out there uh, everywhere in cannabis, and uh, thanks to some... Uh, Crack investigative work by my co-host Rob Hunt. We also discovered that Jimmy has more than a few Grateful Dead stories that he can share with us uh, that are going to be very fun and entertaining. Uh, we want to listen to that. Um, we're going to be talking about a lot of music today. Dave's Picks Volume 39, which came out the uh, April uh, 26, 1983 show from the Philadelphia Spectrum, as well as uh, acknowledging uh, that we're right upon the 49th anniversary of the Grateful Dead's very, very famous show in Veneta, Oregon at the Creamery, a, a benefit show for the uh, the Creamery up there. Uh, one of the most famous Dead shows ever, one that everyone knows about, has heard about, talks about, and which the Dead, of course, released a few years back as another box set for everyone to run out and grab. And, uh, of course, I did, because that's what I do. Um, but we are going to talk about that. We've got some other great, interesting stuff. Uh, let me start off by saying hello to my co-host, Jim Marty from Colorado. Jim, how are you? Very good. Enjoying the, the last days of summer out here in Colorado and looking forward to uh, talking to Jimmy. Excellent. Excellent. And from uh, the summer home in New York, we've got uh, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings. Uh, Rob, how's everything with you? It's great. I'm actually back in California, if you couldn't tell by my background today, Larry. Oh, sorry, uh, I got, got back two days. That's okay. I got back two nights ago, and um, we are uh, looking forward to talking about the Venita show, because if, uh, if there's anything I love, it's Venita, Oregon. Anyone who's spent time at Country Fair uh, will attest to the fact that it's a pretty special place. So anytime I get to talk about you know Garcia, Ken Kesey, Mountain Girl, and Ken Babs in the same show, uh, I'm, I'm a happy guy. Well, let's start off with something else uh, right away that's, that's big news. Uh, and this is on the marijuana side, uh, where we have Tilray that bought uh, Gotham's, Gotham Green's debt on MedMen. Rob, what can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, if, if you're following the MedMen story, you know, if you want to talk about kind of unmitigated disasters over the last year, um, that's certainly one of them. Certainly there's a, a couple stakeholders that were holding on to a fair portion of the, um, the assets of that company, whether it was Gotham Green or whether it was... Um, uh, uh, Inception or uh, a couple of the groups, I um, uh, can't remember the one out of um, Chicago, but there, there's a handful of debt holders uh, of that business and you know, Treehouse being another one, a Stable Road being another one, all of them are secured by assets in MedMen. So what's recently happened is Gotham Green, who is probably the largest debt holder, uh, just sold that debt to Tilray, which is a Canadian-based company. And the reason this is newsworthy is, you know, the Canadians have all been trying, trying to figure out a way to enter the U.S. market, but they are, you know, barred from doing so um, if they're actually directly plant touching. You know, Tilray is a, uh, I believe, a NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange listed company. So if they were to directly touch the plant in the United States, they would lose their, uh, their listing on a major exchange and they'd be relegated back to the CSE or the, the you know, TSX or the NEO. So for them, this is a pretty big move because they're, uh, they're testing the waters of what can be done. They're not directly touching the plant because all they're doing is holding the debt, but they've got it as a convertible. So should legalization happen, uh, then they're able to convert directly into equity of MedMen and take a large equity uh, stake in that company. But in the meantime, they can collect a coupon 
on the company um, going forward. So it, it's a really nice backdoor way for a Canadian company to enter the U.S. market with a company that they think has you know strong enough brand appeal and traction that it's worthwhile for them to come in and, and snatch up at least a portion of the uh, of, of the outstanding debt. Jim, what are your thoughts on it? Um, yeah, a lot of activity, uh, a lot of uh, profitability. We talked about GTI last week, and um, I'm aware of two other three three super large deals that are in the works that are not publicly disclosed yet. So yeah, the mergers and acquisitions in cannabis is uh, very, very active right now. What do you see is, is, is this like the, the final swan song of the, of the med men saga in, you know, uh, legal marijuana in this country? It, it's a, it's a crazy story. Adam Bierman is an interesting character and we could probably talk about that all day if we wanted to. What is this? Are they just gone now? They're out of the picture, Rob. All of this is just happening with them on the sidelines. It is. They're ousted a while ago, and quite honestly, I'd rather you know poke myself in the eye with a sharp stick than talk about Adam Bierman for an episode. It's uh, it's probably the best thing that could have happened to that company to watch him and uh, and Andrew Modlin get you know ousted out of that out of that business. Um, they left a trail of disaster in their wake. And the people that are actually are the dead holders in that business are now trying to figure out what to do. So, as I said, it wasn't just one group that was holding the debt; it was multiple groups. And you know, so you think about where MedMen you know was located. They had California assets, they had New York assets, they had I think Florida for a period. They sold off you know different pieces to different groups. So you know, a lot of these have been just acquired. So the people that were holding the debt are now you know made whole. But um, the the fact of the matter is, you know, say what you want about the founders and say what you want about the issues they had. The brand itself is still a very well-recognized brand. If you're not in the cannabis industry, you don't know any of that stuff. All you know is that you recognize the name. They've got stores all over the place, and you know, for a while they were, you know, they did a better job branding themselves than any other group from like a marketing perspective. Um, you know, MedMen was terrific. So you know, there's groups out there that are willing to take a chance despite the fact that the company was just hemorrhaging cash for a long time. That you know, if they can actually stabilize the business and they can sell off different assets and leave it as kind of one core, you know, MedMen asset that remains, then for somebody it's going to be valuable. It's a question of how. So, you know, what's happened this year is you watched a massive run up in the stock price in early February. Uh, it's since then, you know, kind of creeped back down, but it's never creeped back down to the levels it was at back, you know, post uh, the run up in February. So it's, it, it's got some stability. It certainly has, you know, the Robin Hood and the Reddit guys watching it closely. The volume on the stock is great. But it's, um, you know, it, it's just, it's not even like a, a top four tier. You know, it's it, it's a, a bit tier player at this point. Uh, I think it's a sub $100 million market cap. And that's largely because it's sidled with so much debt. But if you can fix some of those issues and all you're left with is the brand, the brand has value. Well, and like you say, the real benefit of this is it's, hopefully uh, establishing a game plan for how Canadian companies can get involved in the U.S. right now if that's something they desire to do. Yes, we're seeing some very large and profitable cannabis companies. Uh, I was visiting with a, one of my Colorado clients, and uh, they said they're up to 1,500 employees. I mean, that's a, that's a big business. That's not a mom and pop. No, not at all. Not at all. So, okay, well, you know, uh, the good news out of all of this, guys, that I that I take away from it every time is that it still amazes me that we're having this kind of conversation about a marijuana company, right? I mean, it's, this isn't, you know, GM we're talking about or Ford Motor or something like that. This is a marijuana company. Those of us around have known Adam Bierman and for a long time, and, you know, whether we like him or not, you know, the, the, the history of MedMen has kind of, you know, tracked the arc of, 
you know, the industry up to this point. But, you know, I, I like the fact that there's big numbers involved. I like the fact that there's this kind of, you know, corporate intrigue a little bit because it does, it normalizes, it lets investors take a look at it and say, yeah, these guys aren't any different from anybody else out there. And, you know, with, without even any regard to legality issues that I know we talk about from time to time, you know, you get normalization in the financial markets to some degree. And boy, that could be, I mean, not that it's not already there, but, you know, the sky's the limit, I would say. Yes. As, as I've said many times, uh, we will be at $100 billion legal market by 2030 is my prediction. Uh, so we have a long way to go because we're only at about 20, 25 billion annual right now on the on the legal market. So 70% still the illicit market. Okay. Well, something to keep our eye on and uh, be interesting to see how Tilray does. And uh, yes, MedMen still is a, a very, very strong brand. We have one, but we had one here in, in Evanston. Now it's Zen Life, but uh, all the stuff inside still says MedMen. And, you know, I'm just old fashioned, although they don't have the red bags, I guess, that were the standard uh, marketing marketing thing for most of those MedMen uh, dispensaries. So moving on for a minute here from our marijuana, let's, uh, although we do have a lot of music to talk about today, we have a guest who's really got... Uh, some great stories, some great information, uh, and, and just a great background and a great history to share with us. Jimmy Young. Jimmy, welcome very much to the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show. It's a pleasure to have you here. I am so honored to be amongst legends like all of you on this show. The fact, the fact that you could incorporate me on a Deadhead show alone is a, quite a thrill for me, okay? I just got to say. Well, we were very thrilled. Uh, you know, we had seen your, your professional background and your professional history, which was intriguing enough. Uh, but like I say, you know, when, when Rob did about 30 seconds of deep digging, the stories that came to the surface convinced us uh, that you were a guy we had to have on. So we can get to all the dead stuff in a minute. Larry, I was just going to say, when someone tees it up like that, just take a moment and absorb the fact that finally we have a guest that recognizes greatness. Thank you. You know, it's, uh, it, 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 it's so rare that our guests come on and actually see the, uh, the hosts for what they are. But, Jimmy, thank you. It's, it's taken, what, 120 episodes before we finally have someone that says. Like, so it's, uh, thank, thank you, Jimmy. For, uh, we'll just bask in that for a quick second, and now we can move on. Please bask. That this is why I like having Rob as a co-host because he's got the insight to recognize these moments while I would just barrel forward and not think about it till later. So well played, Rob. Thank you. Well, well, hang on a second. Now you guys are able to to actually recite dates, times, concerts. You remember, you know, the the playlist of these concerts that you went to. I mean, I'm fascinated by the whole culture. Always have been. Okay, just because I was a sports guy doesn't mean I don't appreciate great music, great genius that has been part of the Grateful Dead um, legacy over my entire life, I will have you know. Well, I was going to say, right, and you know, we can always get into those stories right away because uh, anybody who can hang out and talk sports with Bill Kreutzmann until 4 a.m. in the morning, that's a guy <laughs> I want to get to know. It happened. It, it happened. What, I cannot... what can you tell us about Billy? Is he a big sports fan? He must be well, if he's talking to you all night. Well, think about it. They, they all were. They were all Giants fans, right? They were all right. big baseball right. fans. You know, since we booked this, I've had an opportunity to meet a guy by the name of, um, is it Cameron Sears, who's the head yeah. of the, the foundation? So it turns out he's got a place in Massachusetts on Cape Cod. And during the um, the go between, you know, between Jerry's birth and Jerry's death, right? The I, I learned, I le yep. right? I learned about this this year, so you know, it's never never too old for a dog to learn new tricks. Okay, and uh, found out that he was the one 
who put together the Oxford Plains Speedway concert in 1988, I want to say, in Mm -hmm. uh, Oxford, Maine. And I was a sportscaster at the CBS affiliate in Portland, Maine from 1981 to 1992, which is how I got to hang with the dead one night, actually a few nights. And I, and I heard a, a reference in the, uh, in the setup where you guys were talking about um, the helicopter rides that, the, that the, the Grateful Dead used to take from concert to concert or wherever. So they had to take a helicopter from Oxford, Maine to Cape Elizabeth, Maine, where the band was staying at a beautiful beach resort called the Inn by the Sea in Cape Elizabeth that was run by uh, now ex-wife number one and uh, her current husband, who was the general manager of that particular inn, let's just say. Um, uh-huh. But I do remember them landing in a, uh, a cornfield in Cape Elizabeth at about 12.30 in the morning, and the Cape Elizabeth police had, had created this heliport with their headlights, right? About uh, 10 of the, I think it was the entire member um, police force of the Cape Elizabeth, Maine. And uh, the, the helicopters were landing, and they blared dark side of the moon out of the uh, of the loudspeakers. And the band coming off the helicopters, I mean, it was a scene from your brain, if you will, of uh, the dark side of, your, of, the, of the moon and uh, of Pink Floyd's music. And they loved that. They thought that was the coolest thing. And the fact that I was there, and I admit it was 1230, it was after hours. I was buzzed. I thought it was really cool too. But the coolest thing about that was hanging out with Billy Kreutzman until 4 uh, a.m. talking about um, what was higher, closer to the North Pole, Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon. And this was before Google, guys. Okay, so you know we're we're thinking we're looking at a globe, and we're trying to. You guys remember what? I think it's Maine, isn't it? Did you ever figure it out? It actually was Portland, Maine, but not by much, and not by much. So yes, but it took us four hours to figure it out. It was really a lot of fun, and yes, we did talk about sports as well. I'll I'll give you a weird stat, Jimmy. The uh, the state that's closest to Africa is Maine. That makes sense because it's down east, as they say. In the, uh, in the in the world, it, right, it is closer to Africa, 100%. Um, but Brent Mid- the late Brent Midland was also in the room that night, as was uh, the, the longtime publicist, Dennis McNally, who was from Maine originally. And uh, that was the only concert that I got to go backstage. Not that it was that big of a thrill, to be honest with you guys, because they wouldn't let us go into the areas, you know what I'm saying? Right, but we were right. behind the scenes. But I think yes. it's really funny because it's at the same speedway that I got to interview uh, a great NASCAR legend named Bobby Allison. Okay? Sure. And, all right? So at the same time, Bob, Bob you're, you know who that is. So to, I interviewed a legend of NASCAR and then, of course, hung out and partied with the dead after the fact. I mean, it was... Uh, I've had a blessed life in many, many ways. I mean, I know there aren't very many people in the world who can say that they've interviewed Pele, Hank Aaron, Larry Bird, Steve D'Angelo, Bill Kreutzman, uh, <laughs> and uh, a few others, let's just say, through the years um, from the uh, from the cannabis world. Bruce Linton is a friend, too. Uh, you know, I know you guys know who he is as well. So uh, it, it's wow. been, like I said, a blessed life for me. Okay. <clears throat> well, um... Are you familiar with some of the stories, uh, the Boston Celtics and the Grateful Dead? Where, um, come on, uh, come on, wait, 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 hold on a second. You know I bleed green, right? I mean, I actually watched the Celtics lose the Rookie League Championship game last night to the Sacramento Kings, okay? So, of course I know Bill Walton and the stories of the dead, okay? Come on. And how he used to load up the Celtics and take them out to Worcester for Grateful Dead shows? Absolutely. And I, one of these days, I, I think I've only... 
did I ever interview Bill? I don't know. He was at Larry Bird night. I was at Larry Bird night when I interviewed um, Magic Johnson. But I don't know if I ever got a chance to interview Bill Walton. I would love. That's one of those that's gotten away from me. I would love to uh, interview Bill Walton. If you guys know him well enough to make an intro, because... Uh, we know enough of the uh, we we know enough people in common that we could have a great conversation. Yes, I'm sure. And then Jimmy, did you ever uh, get to any of the Grateful Dead shows at the Boston Garden? Uh, I did not at the Boston Garden, but at the Cumberland County Civic Center. They played there once, and I did get to see them there. That was in Portland, okay. Maine. Um, but guys, look, I listened to them since I was a kid. Okay, I mean, I used to wear Jerry Garcia ties every time I did a sports cast in Boston when I had my own show. I used to start my Saturday night show off with, hi, everybody, welcome to one more Saturday night sports world with Jimmy Young. I mean, it was just my standard line, you know. Um, I love, you know, what a long, strange trip it's been. I, I use as many different lines as I possibly can in, in whatever conversation I have. So while I never dropped acid and followed them around the country, I do appreciate the fact that I've qualified for a Deadheaded Cannabis podcast show. Okay. You know what's so funny, Jimmy, is that as deadheads, we always recognize the uh, the newscasters or the sportscasters that do that. Whether it's Katie Turr, the way she does it with fish, or the, you know Jake Sherman does it with fish. There's a lot of people like we even know like in in, um, in games like you know in the Super Bowl when uh, it goes to commercial break and you hear like a dead song or a fish song, you always wonder who the person is that's making that decision. But it's you know kind of that whole idea of we are everywhere. You know, you, uh, you see it all the time, and there's these subtle references that are made, which pretty much gained you an audience, you probably didn't realize it, of deadheads all over the going, I'm listening to Jimmy Young, because that guy, you know, he, he makes Grateful Dead references. And for me, that's like a deciding factor all the time. You're like, okay, I'll turn on that, uh, that newscaster, that sportscaster, specifically, because I think, okay, they're one of us. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And, and don't forget, I also, I've always been um, a champion of the little guy, if you will. I believe in... Um, we, we, have a, we have an opportunity in the cannabis world right now to right a lot of the wrongs uh, about this failed war on drugs. And I really uh, champion that. I think having Muhammad Ali as a true hero of mine growing up in the 60s, someone who stood up for an unpopular war and was willing to give up his pro greatest professional years of his life to believe in something that he knew was wrong um, still impacts my life in many, many ways. Yeah. And um, the way Kaepernick has today. Right. And, and even now, as I look into the history of cannabis in the United States and see the role that race has played in this, um, it, it really bothers me. It, make, it gives me even more passion and drive for continuing to tell the stories uh, about cannabis on our shows and in our content that we, we share. And we live stream 24-7 on ProCannabisMedia.com. I'm going to give shameless plugs as much as I possibly can, guys. Okay. Can, can you repeat that? I, I think I heard ProCannabisMedia.com. Is that correct? That's correct. That's exactly where you can find 24-7 streaming of our Roku channel and our Apple Plus channel. And, of course, we also live stream um, a couple of shows a week, including The Business of Cannabis, every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. On all of your social media platforms, your Facebooks, your YouTubes, your Periscopes, your Twitches, your wherever else I can put a live stream up. 
you know? Well, the best part is is that our wonderful producer, Dan Hummiston, will make sure all of that information is on the show notes uh, for people who come and watch the podcast. So that's always our closing question is, Jimmy, how can our fans get a hold of you? So That's right. Well, well it's Jimmy at Pro Cannabis Media. And trust me, I get a ton of junk mail because of that, but I don't care, okay? Because it's, uh, it's, it's all part of the deal, right? And Jimmy, what are some of the recent topics you've explored on your show? Oh, goodness gracious. Well, we just uh, I just did a LinkedIn Live about an hour ago with a guy named Rick Thompson out of Michigan. And we were talking about, uh, obviously, the CAO, the um, Cannabis Administrative and Opportunity Act that our U.S. senators have put out there. And we've talked a lot about how um, there are elements to that public discussion bill. I don't want to call it a bill yet because it really hasn't been introduced as a bill. It's a draft of a discussion to talk about. But, um, and I think I I heard Larry, you say it. I pinch myself. We're talking about weed being legalized in the United States of America. I'm 64 years old in a couple of weeks, guys. I never thought in a million years I'd be going from sports talk to weed talk. Okay? It's amazing. What a country, as Don King used to say, right? What a country. (laughs) I reinvented myself as an attorney, you know, 25 years out. All of a sudden, I became a popular person to talk to at cocktail parties. <laughs> That's it. Well, whatever whatever it takes, Larry, I suppose. Uh, absolutely. And, and when people ask me, by the way, about, hey, where should I invest? You know, I hear cannabis stocks are great. Where should I invest? I go, find a good law firm because the lawyers are going to make out on this baby for years to come, Right. They can't even get the licenses issued in Illinois without round after round of lawsuits. It's you know we we just stand at the trough. And, and once again, I, I I throw this out there every now and then, but it, my my favorite all time line uh, for that is uh, Jim Marty's line from the very first time I met him at the uh, MJ Biz conference, and he talked to all of us and about where the business was and was going to be, and he said, "For you professionals, it is a." Cornucopia of billing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Cornucopia of billable hours. Billable hours, 100%. I love that quote. Do I have to attribute that to Jim Marty now? You sure do. <laughs> I do. You know, it's a great line, you know, and, and it, it, it really it really speaks to what's happening. And yes, as a professional, it's, it, look, it's wonderful. There's all this great stuff to work on. It beats the hell out of, you know, talking about widgets and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, you, you get to deal with people who have interests that are common to yours. And what's nice is, you know, you still get people in the industry who are surprised that a lawyer, any lawyer, can come in and, like, start actually talking the talk with them, you know, and, and can show their bona fides. And, yes, I, I'm familiar with all of that. And yes, I've been down that road. And you can talk to me like you talk to your your partners and all of that, you know, we're, we're, we're hip, cool, whatever you want to call it. My kids won't call me hip and cool. Yeah, I was gonna... They just call me an old man with a lot of knowledge for whatever that's worth. So I, I take that and I'm happy about it. And I'm the, and I've been called the OWG. Okay. So, I, and I'm comfortable with my old white guy status. All right. Yeah. It's just, right. The, but I am painfully unhip when it comes to I listen to the same music. I listen to guys in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I just, you know, I'm a classic rock guy, San Francisco sound, the airplane. I yeah. love them. You so, know? So, Jimmy, let me ask you a quick question that with that in mind. When you went to see the Oxford shows in Maine, which was uh, July 2nd and 3rd of 1988, what did yes. you like better, Little Feet as an opener or The Grateful Dead as the, uh, as the main event? It's a no-brainer. Come on. I love Little Feet. I just heard it on my uh, playlist, okay? Uh, Willin, thank you very much. But um, uh, The Dead, heads down. Come on. There's a reason why there's an opening act and then, and then there's the main act, okay? You, you know that Willin was the song that got um, Lil George kicked out of Frank Zappa. I actually heard that, yes. I did know that. That's good stuff, though, man. 
I love it. I love age-appropriate factoids, you know? Well, it's, one, it's one of the great rock and roll songs of all time. It's you know, one of the great drug reference songs of all time. Absolutely. And, I, and there is one more story that I have to share from that, that time at the Inn by the Sea. And, um, and Larry, we talked about it. I got an opportunity to, uh, to interview Trixie Garcia few months ago and that's up on my in the weeds podcast by the way in the weeds with jimmy young make sure you put my name in there please because there's about a thousand other podcasts called in the weeds but only one with jimmy young okay and it's with trixie garcia and it has to do with that time when they were staying uh for that concert and um i had a dog at the time and i was walking my dog and i'm walking my dog around the, the suite where jerry was staying and i knew he happened to which which suite he was in, and I, I was walking my dog, and I looked to my right, and there, about 12 feet away from me in the window, is Jerry Garcia doing the dishes. Now, you know, I, I, it was a really odd thing, right? I'm like, oh, check it out. Jerry Garcia's doing the dishes. He sees me out there. Nice, friendly guy. Waves. I wave back to him. You know, hey, how you doing, right? So, of course, I asked Trixie. I go, Trixie, did he do the dishes all the time? And, and she says, are you kidding? Never. I never saw him do the dishes, ever. You know, and I said, well, I guess that was a rare sighting then because I definitely have that embossed in my memory as my close, you know, up close and personal with Jerry himself. If you remember what if you remember what dish detergent he was using, you can make somebody very rich. <laughs> no, I don't. And, uh, and, and, and I'll tell you the, the, the sad side to this. So... Grandma, on my maternal side, many years ago, passed away that weekend, guys. So I literally went from 4 a.m. with Billy Kreutzman to 9 a.m. Paul Bearer in the synagogue uh, for my grandmother's funeral. Oh, it was, you talk about a high to a low, but needless to say, I was in a very good mood when it happened. And, uh, you know, she lived a wonderful life. And um, but it was uh, it was a crazy time in my life, needless to say. Very cool sure. memories. Very cool memories. Wow. OK. And, and what got you into broadcasting in the first place? So, uh, oh, boy, that's a question that I can answer very quickly. Um, I was an athlete my whole life, I swear. And I did play college soccer uh, in the 70s at Tufts University, my alma mater. I had ripped up my ankle for the second time my junior year. I didn't know what... Go Jumbos. Go Jumbos. Who knows about the Jumbos? I did my last semester of college at uh, Tufts. Oh, very cool. All right. What year was that, Rob? I was in my mid-30s. I spent, the, spent my 20s and late teens um, skiing and following the dead, so I, I didn't make it back to college until much later. <laughs> you do qualify as a deadhead, then. Congratulations. Yeah, so uh, great time. Anyway... But uh, so I ripped up my ankle, had, didn't know what the hell to do. Friend of mine was a, a pioneer of Tufts Television, one of the founders of it. And he said, what are you going to do now with all your time that you're not playing soccer? And I go, I really have no idea. And he goes, well, how would you like to produce sports in Boston at Channel 4? And I go, I know nothing about television sports production. He goes, no, you know sports. And I go, yeah, of course I know sports. I, I love sports. I grew up with sports. I, you know, I'm from Boston for crying out loud. And he goes, well, you get college credit to watch sports on TV. And I go, ooh, 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 sign me up for that. I'll take the college credit for watching sports on TV. So that is kind of how I got out of thinking I would be a teacher and a coach my whole life and became a sports producer at age 20 for the NBC affiliate in Boston, and then wow. was in Portland, Maine at age 23 at the CBS affiliate doing weekend sports, and then came back to Boston, my career goal in 1992, and had my own sports talk show 
um, on a 24-hour regional news channel called NECN, New England Cable News. It still exists and is actually was just sold for, uh, I think, $110 million to NBC Universal a few years back. So I didn't screw that one up and, um, and won an Emmy Award for a talk show I created uh, for kids, a sports talk show for kids. So, uh, and in fact, if you are watching the visual, the, vi the video record of this, I always have it purposely placed over my right shoulder, if you will. I'm very proud of my little trophy. So there you go. That's my story. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Yeah, we were talking before the show started that um, you and I grew up watching a lot of the same shows on WBZ in Boston. Yes, we did. Uh, we talked about, uh, I think it was Captain Kangaroo and Rex Trailer and a few other black and white specials, right? I used to watch them every morning before going to school. <laughs> wow. That's great. I, I love age-appropriate people, guys. This is awesome. <laughs> well, we, this is awesome. That's right. We have to drag Rob along. He's the baby of the group, but he can hold his own pretty well, too, if he has to. Yeah, but he knew the Jumbos were the mascot of my alma mater, okay? And I'm a three-generation uh, Tufts alum. My, my father, class of 45, brother 74, sister-in-law 76, and niece 2003. And, yes, I did graduate in 1979, okay? Wow, okay. Uh, so, yeah, you guys have Tufts locked down yeah, cold there. Yeah, yeah. The same year I graduated from UMass. That's right, that's right. And that's where my mom went. So uh, we, have that, we have that East Coast connection. I love that. And it was the dead and weed that brought us together. Let's make sure we understand that, right, guys? Uh, I, as much as we can say to people, 100%, you know, it's a great way to live. In fact, Jimmy, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about some Grateful Dead music, and you are certainly welcome to, to hang out with us for the rest of the hour. Well, I appreciate that, but I think you guys know I do have a very important appointment coming up in a few minutes that I really do have to get to because even though I was an athlete once, I've had four surgeries in 22 years. It's one of the reasons why I qualified for a medical card in Massachusetts in 2013, <laughs> and uh, I had horrific back spasms a couple of days ago, and I have got to get to the, um, to the masseuse that I, um, I go to on a regular basis so I can actually function. But I, I got to tell you what a thrill it's been just to talk about these times with you guys. I so support the cause. I love that um, the dead are still alive in our hearts and our memories forever. I believe that, um, is Bob Weir coming back with Dead Again or, or to Fenway Park this summer or have they already been here? I, I may have missed that. Uh, yeah. but, no. September, early September, and I think they're doing what I used to call Great Woods in Mansfield. Right, and it's still Great Woods in Mansfield, okay? So there you go. I think the Xfinity's, the Xfinity Senator, right? Right, a Senate, but, uh, Senator, but uh, yeah, that is it, guys. And I, and I really do appreciate it. And again, um, I'm so proud of the fact that we are living to tell the story of those who have made a difference in all of our lives and how cannabis has saved our lives. Cannabis has changed our lives. That's why I started this company was so that people would have a safe place and a friendly place to go to tell their stories. And obviously the, uh, the Deadhead Cannabis Show is keeping that spirit alive as well. And I salute all of you. And again, if any of you want to subscribe, like, and share our stuff, I so appreciate it. We're, uh, we're doing great with our people are discovering what we're doing now. Uh, and I'm so proud of the seven other producers that work with me. Uh, we've got a morning show that we do live with the great nurse, uh, green nurse group. And uh, our business of cannabis show is Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern. 
And uh, please, please, please like, share, subscribe. I will do the same to you. And more importantly, as I, as I fade off into the subset, uh, sunset, as I go down the road feeling bad, okay, I'm going to put on some dead uh, on the way to the masseuse and, and think of this moment. Uh, because uh, as great as it was that I got thrown in the Charles River by Bobby Orr once, this has been one of the highlights of my broadcast career. I really do believe Well, now we're going to have to bring you back to hear that story. Yeah, I know how that works, too, guys. You know how to find me. I'm the St. Louis Blues fan who still has nightmares of him soaring through the air after he scored the winning goal in OT. Oh, at Glenn Hall, I remember that. I remember uh, it was uh, was it Glenn Hall in goal? Noel Picard. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Hall was in goal, and Noel Picard. That's hit right. Him. And I've seen the autograph pictures. I've got the autograph pictures of both Noel Picard and Glenn Hall and Bobby Orr. It's awesome. Happy to tell you that story on another show, guys. More importantly, you're coming on my show. We will. Okay. Can't wait. Can't wait. I, I was a paper boy for the Boston Globe, and I delivered that newspaper with Bobby Orr diving across the front of the net. I hope you saved a copy, okay? <laughs> I, I've been waiting my whole life for Bobby Orr to throw me in the Charles River. I can tell you that story, and there is video that exists of that as well, guys. So I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation with you guys. Keep, keep up the good work, and again, thank you for allowing me to come on. That's actually a great segue because, uh, you know, Jimmy was talking about Trixie Garcia and we were going to talk a little bit about Vanita, Oregon. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Trixie wasn't just raised by Garcia, but she was also raised by Mountain Girl and Ken Kesey. And uh, anyone who's been to Vanita, Oregon and been to the country fair will realize that, you know, Ken Kesey was really the, uh, the muse behind the, uh, the country fair and a lot of the things that happened up there um, for many, many years. So if we're going to talk about Oregon, we're going to talk about Vanita. There's no possible way we can do it without uh, without talking about Ken a little bit, without talking about the Springfield Creamery and the Vanita show from uh, I believe it was what, August 27th, 1972. Is that right, Larry? That's correct. Yep. So we're we're sneaking up on a uh, 50th anniversary here, and uh, it, it is a great show. And and for our listeners, uh, we're 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 swinging into this for a minute, but we are going to circle back around to Dick, Dave's picks 39. So. Uh, if you're waiting to hear about that one, please hang tight. But uh, Vanita, uh, given the fact that it's an anniversary and, th- and the significance of the show, I guess, you know, it, what, what I like about it is it's, it's, it's certainly one of the times when there was a big show and the dead lived up to, to the bill and, and really delivered with, you know, just a classic performance. You know, there's been many a time when everybody gathered saying tonight's going to be the night for Jerry to explode and he explodes in the wrong direction. Um, but this show was just solid from start to finish. The music is great. The song selection is great. The energy from the crowd is great. And in, in the in the box set from the dead, uh, the music is wonderful. But they also give you the uh, Sunshine Daydream film that was was uh, about the uh, about this show. It, it, and it, 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 it's 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 something that everybody should 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 check out if you haven't. And you can go online and find most of this content that I'm talking about. But you know, people kind of talk about it with a certain level of awe and reverence, and I have to say, I have never been out to Vanita, so I, I can't comment on it in person. But Rob, you've been there. I have been there, and I was actually meant to go to a Grateful Dead show there on August twenty second, nineteen ninety two, which was canceled. They canceled five nights in, in nineteen ninety two, and that was one of them. Um, so I had tickets in hand. I was supposed to go see the Dead play there, but uh, I've been there for Country Fair a couple times, and I can tell you that. You know, if anyone out in the audience has been to Country Fair, uh, it used to be that you could camp and stay there all night, and there was probably no stranger place in the world than, than camping at Country Fair. And it got to be such a scene that they uh, they ended up, you know, kind of making it invite only, and they had what was called, I think it was called the Vanita Navy, which was Keezy and all the rest of the pranksters, you know, Babs and all the rest of those guys that would 
send their guys to patrol the river that surrounded the fairgrounds um, for the most part. And if you didn't have an invite in at night, you couldn't come because what happened, you know, late at night was stuff of legend and uh, everyone wanted to be a part of it, but there just wasn't enough room for everyone to be there. So they'd limit it to, you know, a couple hundred people. So I'll tell you that that's um, some, of, some of the craziest things I've ever sort of seen or not sure I've seen in my life uh, happened on that island at night um, at the Venita County Fairgrounds. But th- that fair is still going on. And for anyone out there that has not gone to see, um, you know, Venita Country or the uh, Oregon Country Fair in Venita, you know, definitely make it a point sometime in your life to go check it out. That's one of the uh, one of the last great uh, areas, and it's you know set up as a Renaissance fair. So there's all sorts of infrastructure there for like jousting and puppets and other cool stuff. So it's, you know the closest thing we have in the East Coast is bread and puppet in Vermont, but uh, the Venita County Fairgrounds were were set up specifically to uh, to kind of put on different events and different plays with two or three different stages around the spot, and these great pathways that would lead from one one area to the other. So really, really cool, and, and not too far from Eugene, which is, you know, it's a great area. Well, I have never been to that part of the world, and I am dying to get out there, and I'm sure that I will, unfortunately, not to see the Grateful Dead play, but uh, still to take in, uh, in all the beauty of it that's out there. And, and that's one of the things that really comes through on this, on this music uh, uh, from Vanita, is just the, you know, the great energy they have going and everything that's happening with them. Um, I personally am a big fan of uh, Birth in the first set. They play it totally out of location for where it normally goes. Jerry's on fire with it. Um, and, you know, it's a set closer. Well, that's true, actually. It is the set closer, which is very rare if you talk about it. The first set closer, that almost... I can't ever remember that for for Bertha. Um, and then it, um, in the second set or the third set, at least the way they, they label it in the, uh, in the CD disc box, um, they've got a 31-minute Dark Star that spills over into El Paso. And I guess there was just a period of time for them in 70, late 70, 71, and early 72 maybe, where for some reason El Paso got matched up with Dark Star quite often. And, you know, I've seen it on a couple of recordings that they've released where either right in the middle of the Dark Star they break into El Paso and then go back to Dark Star or they, they use it as a lead-in or a lead-out. And don't know why, but on, on this recording it sounds really, really good. That's why that set is such a strange one. It's a four-song third set that starts off with a monster dark star and then goes into two country tunes. I think it's a Marty Robbins tune in El Paso and then a Merle Haggard song in Sing Me Back Home. And then they come back with classic Grateful Dead with a Sugar Mags closer. So it's like, you know, you go from the ultra-psychedelic to two country tunes to, um, to kind of like your classic Americana Grateful Dead and Sugar Mags. It's such a strange four-set combination pairing, but, uh, but somehow it works really well. Yes, I... Um Heard an interview recently with Bob Weir talking about that, and he said back in the 60s, the rock and roll stations in the Bay Area played a lot of country western, and that's where they got the Marty Robbins, the Merle Haggard, the Johnny Cash songs came into the repertoire of the Grateful Dead. And I'm glad they did. You know, it, it's, it's great music. They kind of took it and made it their own. For me, it definitely opened the door into other musicians that I might not have uh, ever found my way over to, but for the fact that the dead were covering their music, so I thought, oh, well, I might as well go check out the original and hear what it's all about. So Vanita is a, uh, is a great show. Um, hard to believe it's 49 years ago. The stories are legend. Check them out. Uh, read about it. If you don't know who Ken Kesey is, by all means, you got to read about Ken Kesey. Babs, the Waldos were involved with the dead back in the day. Um, you know, the Waldos are always fun to talk about as well. Uh, the, the group that uh, is unofficially credited with... Uh, 
coining the 420 phrase. So, uh, you know, they're always a popular conversation piece. And for our younger listeners, uh, a must-read is Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Yes. Well, well I was going to say a must-read also is uh, Ken Kesey's books. You know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest gets all the attention, but I think sometimes a great notion is a, 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 probably a better book. Um, so if anyone wants to know what being a logger was like, and a great movie, yeah, and a terrific movie, you know, it's a, it's a very, very tragic movie. And I think the, uh, the, the, the sense of desperation towards the end of, uh, being sort of pinned by a log in the river is, uh, is a tough one. If anyone doesn't understand the reference to the title of the book, it was the, um, I think it's the lead belly songs, um, it's, uh, good night, Irene. So the, the title of the book is taken from the, uh, the line, sometimes we live in the country, sometimes we live in the town, sometimes we take a great notion to jump in the river and drown. And that's uh, that was you know the sort of the, the thought behind the idea of writing a book about loggers that you know ultimately um, you know pay the ultimate price for for logging on the river. Ken Kesey is amazing, and the combination of him and the dead and the pranksters is a is another topic for another day because uh, getting to talk about the acid tests and all the craziness that they all did. But it is fun to kind of talk about it and kick it around and um, to always look into it and to see what's happening. Uh, let's turn our attention. Um, then back over to Dave's picks, uh, 39 for a minute. Jim, what are your thoughts on that release? Well, I've been listening to it quite a bit, a uh, couple times all the way through, out in my barn at a good, good solid volume. And I have to say, um, an amazingly long show, two segments of space. Yes. And a, and a fine, fine help on the way, Slipknot, Franklin's Tower. Yes. Really enjoying the heck out of it. You know, there's a good trucking on there. I think they come out of space into trucking. There's a killer morning dew. So, um, yeah, really enjoying the heck out of Dick Dave's Picks 39. Well, it's funny that you mentioned trucking, Jim, because the uh, music I'm going to ask Dan to tee up for us here in a second comes towards the end of the trucking uh, as it's getting ready to transition into the morning dew. And and by the way, the, the morning dew is 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 tremendous too, but we're going to focus on the trucking for a minute. Um, number one, it's it's a 1983 trucking. In 83, I think the boys were, you know, at the height of their powers, at least for my era of seeing them. And, you know, this is, this you know, it's there were 1995 truckings where it felt like they were going through the motions. In 83, they were living it and, and if you listen to the entire song, which we won't have time to do, you can really hear that coming through. Uh, Bobby's voice, Jerry's playing is just crisp and clear and, and as good as it could be at that point in time. But where we're going to pick it up is towards the end. Um, and, and since we, we, we don't let our clips run for very long, it's kind of hard to squeeze in two important parts that I want to get. But we're going we're gonna to start uh, right around the 543 mark of the, of the song. Uh, so that we can catch Phil's big bass bomb. And you have to be listening for it because it's going to happen right away. Um, but this was Phil when he was just out there having a good old time and uh, making your knees rock, even if you were sitting back in the last row. But what, what the real joy of this uh, uh, transition for me is, is that uh, as you get out of the uh, trucking and start to go a little bit farther down, uh, Jerry jumps into a tease of nobody's fault but mine. Uh, Nobody's Fault But Mine is a, is a tremendous number that the dead did from time to time. I saw him do it in 1985 in Kansas City, uh, and it, it, it's just a great song. So uh, without any further ado, The Grateful Dead from April 26, 1983 at the Spectrum of
That's hot, guys. That's as good as it gets. I mean, Man, Phil is just like, thundering on his bass. Oh, it just—I love that, you know. And, and and having just seen fish, and, and meaning zero disrespect to fish, because I, I I love fish, um, you know. But and I love Mike Gordon when he's up there at the beginning of a week of pod groove, and he's really playing that bass, you know, frenetically. But you know, there's just something special about a Phil bass bomb when he just you know gets in the mode just like that, and he drops two or three of them in a row. And really, you could be sitting in the last row of the auditorium, and your knees still knock from it. It's just, uh, if, you know, if you've never experienced it live, try and go find Phil and friends and see if he'll, he'll give you one. Because once you felt it, it, it you know, there, there's no going back. But I love the way Jerry just kind of picks up on the a, a slight hint of nobody's fault but mine and jumps right into it and really takes it and runs with it for a minute there. And another thing about Fish that I really like on their web page is when they list all the songs, the guy gives the content at the end and says, in the middle of this, Trey teased that, and Mike teased this, and that. And, and I, would, I would love that, you know, for the dead, you know, to, for somebody to compile, to go back through some of their shows and, and just mention all the times they tease tunes without ever really going into them. Because if you were there that night, boy, at that moment, you thought we're getting nobody's fault but mine. And they turned out of it. Now, they went into Morning Dew, so I don't think too many people were disappointed. Um, but uh, it, it's just a great piece of music. Could have been a spoonful also. You know, I was thinking about that as well. Yeah, they tease spoon, they, they spoonful in the middle of that. Yeah, they, they did drop in a spoonful. And, and you know, they, they can play them all sometimes so they're almost indistinguishable. But uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, uh, it was a great tease. And, and I suppose coming out of truck and spoonful would have been the logical call, uh, which was something that was not uncommon for them to do back in the day. And uh, spoonful is always a fun tune to hear Bobby uh, sit there and, you know, try and crank out some blues and everything. And... He does a respectable job, I suppose. Um, but this is this is just really a great show from a great period uh, in the Grateful Dead life, and in a venue um, that you know was it was a pretty run-of-the-mill hockey arena for the most part, right in the middle of uh, Philadelphia's uh, sports arena row there, where they had the Vet and uh, uh, R was it RFK? JFK. JFK. Right, JFK. And the Spectrum all lined up one after another. Um, and, and I have to confess, I never saw a show on the Spectrum, but uh, I have friends who did. My wife saw one there. And, and very rarely did I hear somebody come out of the Spectrum and complain about a show that they saw there. More often than not, uh, they were raving about it. And I got arrested what? in the Spectrum. Oh, for? Just, you know, going to a dead show. Smiling on a cloudy day. General nuisance uh, for breaking into the NBC press box and um, you know drinking all their beer, but nothing, nothing serious. That I could see where that you know where they might uh, do that. But uh, in a little foreshadowing for people who like to plan ahead, uh, be sure to tune into our show early April of next year uh, because we will absolutely be talking about the Dead's '82 show at the Spectrum and what I think is the greatest shakedown street ever played. Um, and uh, it's it's just a, it's an amazing place. It brought out the best in them, and uh, it's not surprising to get a good release out of there. And I'm glad that uh, Dave is focusing a little bit more on our era. You know, uh, uh, Jimmy liked to talk about being age appropriate. Well, for me, age appropriate is you know the shows from '82, '83, '84, '85, and that whole era that's woefully unrepresented in the Dick's picks and Dave's picks uh, uh, lexicon today. So hopefully we're gonna. We're going to get uh, more out there. So um, for the last couple of weeks, I've been teasing a, a book review by, I think, one of the finest books on that era of the 60s and 70s, 
uh, by Roni Gizem Stanley, who um, was with Stanley from the early days, from 65, right up to when he died in 2012. Um, they were great friends, lovers, uh, mother of Starfinder. And um, so she met him uh, when she was going to college in San Francisco around 1965 with another young woman by the name of Melissa Cargill. And those two women had a love triangle with Bear. And they were his assistants in the lab. And they helped him batch his LSD. And she has such great inside stories of Bear and how he, you know, kept wads of $100 bills in his boots. And, you know, he never, his whole business theory on LSD was that it was a community service. He wasn't really doing it for the money. And uh, the inside story she has, um, she was rode with Jerry on the helicopter to the stage at Woodstock. And a few weeks ago, we had Sandy Troy talk about how there was a skinny dipping lake behind the stage at Woodstock. Well, she went skinny dipping with Phil Lesh. I mean, that's, she has just great stories. Uh, she was right there for the whole thing. She was at Altamont. Um, she knew the Hells Angels. Uh, she had sex with Terry the Tramp. Uh, <laughs> just a, I highly recommend this book. Um, that's something you like to go home and tell your mom. My Life with Owsley Stanley, uh, My LSD Family by Roni Stanley. So good stuff. And, you know, like I said in an earlier show, so many of the Grateful Dead books, they're almost all written by men. The Grateful Dead are all men. It's from a man's perspective. This is totally from a woman's perspective and what the free love was like in the 60s and, you know, what somebody was wearing the first time she had sex with him and just the <laughs> things that only a woman would know. She talked about a how they would get dressed up real sexy with with uh, with uh, pump high heels that she called uh, "come fuck me pumps." Okay, so very much very much a woman's point of view. Great I book. Will say. First of all, I love the fact you brought Melissa Cargill because she's like the unsung hero of the LSD movement. Everyone knew about Bear. Everyone knew that Owsley was was doing his thing, and you know Tim Scully was the other guy that a lot of people knew about. But Melissa Cargill went on and continued to make LSD for a long time. Um, and both, you know, both Bear and, uh, and Melissa came from pretty affluent families. This wasn't something, you know, wasn't something they had to do. Bear was a kind of a trust fund baby and, uh, was out there just turning on the entire world. So, you know, for, for all the people that don't know the history of LSD and kind of how it was, uh, disseminated throughout the United States in the seventies, you know, go read the, uh, the history of Melissa Cargill and of Tim Scully and of, of Owsley Stanley, uh, and definitely read the book that, that, uh, Jim's making reference to. Yes, and there's another great book, and I forget who the author is, but it, the name of the book is Bear. Both Melissa Cargill and, and Roni were with um, Bear when he got arrested, and uh, he covered for them. Ah, oh, these chicks were just hanging out at the house. Meanwhile, they were actually very smart chemists. Yeah, Melissa's a great chemist. And the other thing that Bear did, um, he as soon as he figured something out, and in this book, there's actually sketches of his lab equipment and how he made LSD. And actually, his last batch was made here in Denver. And back in those days, there was no airport security. He, he, flo- he flew back with a giant um, crystal of LSD that he would batch into you know, 250, 270 milligram capsules that sold for $3 a piece. And um, just such great, you know, all kinds of stories about that. But, um, yeah, they rented a house here in Denver and batched it. And many years later, um, do I have the name right? Albert Hoffnug, who actually invented LSD in the 
40s in Europe? Albert Hoffman, who did for Sandoz Laboratories, which is now um, uh, Novartis, um, did it in Switzerland. Uh, that's right. Bicycle day. Oh, yeah, bicycle day. Um, yeah, I actually have some paper in my freezer that has bicycles on it. And um, anyway, he, um, John Barlow ran into him many years later uh, before Albert Hoffman passed away uh, at some kind of a conference. And Albert Hoffman said, Bear got it. He was the only one that figured it out. And he got it. And what he used to do, Bear, he would, as soon as he figured something out on how to make 99% pure LSD, he would share his information with the other chemists in the industry who were making, you know, illicit market uh, LSD. So the fact that we still have a very good LSD out there, you can thank Bear for being generous with his information. That's when, when he got arrested, he told the cops it was for his personal use. And, you know, <laughs> he always, like I said, he, he thought, you know, and people really thought this, and they still do that. And we're looking at all the violence right now in Afghanistan, that LSD would make the human race less violent and more peaceful. That was really a belief that people had in the 60s and 70s, and Bear was part of that. He wanted to turn as many people onto LSD as he possibly could. Well, I've eaten a lot of LSD and I haven't killed anyone, so maybe it's true. Well, or look, if you just get find a way to get it, you know, sent over to the Taliban and convince them to take it, then we might really be in good shape. Right. Oh well. Um, well, okay, guys, great show today. Uh, a lot of topics covered in uh, in a slightly extended uh, format today, time-wise. Uh, again, thank you very, very much to our guest Jimmy Young. Uh, who joined us earlier in the show. Uh, great conversation with my co-hosts, Jim and Rob, uh, on the, the Venita Oregon show, on uh, Dave's Picks 39 uh, from Philly in 1983, uh, on Owsley Stanley. And uh, we always seem to have more topics than we have time to talk about. So that's a good thing. Anybody got any live music coming up? we got three fish shows, Labor Day weekend. They uh, just announced... You will need to show proof of vaccination, so I downloaded yes. mine from walmart.com. Yep, I saw that, that they're going to start requiring that. So good, that'll be fun uh, uh, at, uh, in Colorado that weekend. That's my son's wedding, and all of his fish buddies will be, unfortunately for them, at the wedding and not at Dick's. But they'll be checking you know, their phones every night to follow along and see what they're missing. So hopefully, it will, as, much, as, as much as I hope you have great shows, Jim, I hope that they're not the greatest shows of all time. So my son has to live with the uh, ignominy or whatever the word is of having uh, had gotten married and pulled everybody away from dicks at the wrong moment. Well, they're playing really well. They are. You can always send your kid over to, uh, to Jim's freezer you know, prior to the wedding. <laughs> Just, just give us the passcode. It's all good. Absolutely. Two popsicles, some ice cream, a steak, and the bicycles. Absolutely. Okay, guys. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, Jim, any parting words? Just over and out from Denver, Colorado. Very good. Rob? We'll see you next week for another fun week of the uh, Deadhead Canvas Show. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Uh, enjoy your live music if you get out to see it. Stay safe, be healthy, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.